Everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you aboard the bus, the big red bus, heading due north for Christmas. Not long to go now, folks. Last couple of shows before our year rounds out. So the jolly old giant sitting in the corner behind the panel driving the bus makes us sound good every week on the air. Robbo, welcome to the show. How are you going? Good. Merry Christmas. Robbo's 20 cents worth. What do you got, mate? Do you know what? I was doing a bit of channel surfing during the week and there's this great show on um, on the ABC all about waste, food waste. Um, and I was having a quick look at that and I came across this great story. Um, you're a glutard. Yes. Today, my missus is a glutard. Plus, here at the Mojo Show, we love innovation and we're always talking about how a lot of the time entrepreneurs are really just people who are solving their own problems. And I reckon this story speaks to a lot of that. There's a banana farmer in North Queensland who was tired of wasting all the green bananas that came off his property. And let's not bother about going into reasons, but it's a big expense for banana farmers. So he's come up with a way of pulping them into a flower. Now, because it's purely green banana, this flower is gluten-free, vegan and paleo-friendly, Plus, it's rich in prebiotic fibre-resistant starch, which is great for your gut health, and it's full of a massive array of vitamins and minerals, and it even has anti-cancer-fighting properties. Now, most importantly for you and Tanae and all the other glutards out there, reports that I've seen show that the days of cakey bread, and I'm sure you know about that, are over as this stuff seems to fluff up like everyday flour, which probably makes it 10 times better than most of the gluten-free stuff that's out there. So I'm going to do my best to try and get this on the show, but just in the meantime, I just thought it was the great example of all the things we talk about this show on a regular basis. Where do you get it? There's a place online, a shop online called Natural Evolution that you can order it from, and funnily enough, it's called Green Banana Baking Flour. <laughs> so um, so there you go, a bit of Aussie innovation to, uh, there you go. to kick us off this the week. The Mojo Radio Show. So this week's guest is a doctor. We love having smart people on the show, and his name is Dr. Sherrod Paul. I first came across this guy reading his work online, and what really intrigued me was the work and investigation he's done into blue zones. Now, blue zones are the areas of the world where people have lived to be centurions, meaning they're older than 100 years old. And actually, there's particular reasons for it. For reasons they have discovered, these people have longevity in their lives. Now, when I looked into Sherrod and what he does and where he comes from, he's actually a skin cancer surgeon. He works with families, a family physician. He's an academic, a skincare expert. He's an evolutionary biologist, a storyteller, and a social entrepreneur, as well as an adjunct professor at the Auckland University of Technology. Now, (laughs) this guy's interesting. He was born in England, had a childhood in India. He works a lot down here in Australia, and he lives in New Zealand. The guy is a global superstar. So, uh, Sherrod, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Pleasure. Real pleasure. We, We have got a lot to dig into today. So, You've got a very eclectic and interesting background. Uh, Just to put people in the picture, when somebody walks up to you to say, 
hey, what do you do? How do you like to reply? Yeah, I think, you know, interesting, it really depends on where I am because, you know, when I'm at a lot of these writers' festivals and things like that, you just say, you know, you're a writer and when you're at medical conferences, you actually just say, you're a doctor and you don't actually say or uh, the other things you do. So I think largely people in life tend to become more siloed. It's almost like you're not supposed to do more than one thing. So I really find it's only really people who know me. Sometimes people who've known me for many years or as patients or something will say, oh, you know, I saw your book in the bookstore and, you know, it's, it's stuff like that. So, so I just really follow my passion. So I don't really, I just say, Oh, I do a little bit of this and a bit of that. Mostly I'm a doctor and I write books, something like that. <laughs> so everyone thinks I'm just writing medical books, all the written novels and things as well. Well, let's start there and we'll work our way through the different interests and passions that you have. Let's start with the book, The Genetics of Health. Yes. One of the, the reasons I, I wanted to get you on the show specifically is to talk about the blue zones. Can you just give people who may not be familiar with that term, what is a blue zone and where do we find them? Yes, so blue zones are typically places where people live longer and happier, healthier. So typically these are places you go, there are a lot of old people in there and, you know, close to 100 and they're actually quite healthy and they actually have good quality of life and they're not just, you know, stuck in rest homes and things like that. And um, so basically when um, Dan Butner, I think when he first looked at it, he was looking at, there's a story I mentioned in the genetics of health, which is actually worth mentioning because it was a very good story of a Greek-American war veteran his name is Tomatis Moraitis, and he basically fought in the war and went back to America, diagnosed with lung cancer, and they basically said, the doctor said you had like seven months to live, so really, you know, do what you want to do. And he thought, well, he had an American dream, you know, he had a Chevy, a condo, all the usual stuff, and he said, oh, no, I want to go back to Greece, to the island of Icaria, where he was from, and die there. So he went back and then he basically, when he went there, he found people who were much more communal. They were dragging him out for all these dinners. The food was healthy. They only ate fish, very little red meat, a lot of olive oil, a lot of tomatoes, things like that. And basically there was a lot of communal activity like dancing and things like that. It was a complete change of lifestyle. And then he literally uh, forgot to die. So 25 years later, he thought, hey, I better go back and tell the doctors there that, you know, maybe there's something to this lifestyle. But he, when he went back, he couldn't find any of them because they were all dead. So, <laughs> so I think, you know, <laughs> so, so, you know, it's a one-person story, so it's hardly a, uh, you know, scientific clinical trial. But we do know in places, so there were seven, I think, blue zones I carry in Greece, I think Sardinia and Italy, Okinawa and Japan. Generally, they tend to be islands for um, some reason. Um, Unfortunately, uh, New Zealand, while it's an island, isn't a blue zone um, because we we export too much beef and lamb and so we love it a bit too much. So I think there are certain things we know in these lifestyles um, that make a big difference. So, for example, in America, there is one blue zone, which is uh, Loma Linda in California, which is the only blue zone which is not an island. And that's because they're mostly Seventh-day Adventists there. So they tend to follow very biblical, that's what they eat more fish and not a lot of meat, but they tend to, you know, eat healthy and that kind of stuff off the land. See, uh, what I want to sort of, I guess, park on for a second is the people of Icaria, for example, they take a nap in the afternoon, uh, they'll stay up late at night, Uh, social networks are really important to them, the communities they live in, 
But there's things like they philosophize and they play dominoes and they, as you said, they just dance. Yes. Is that a commonality that you find showered in blue zones, those types of things? Like what, what defines the activities? Yeah. Ab- absolutely. In fact, one of the chapters in the book, which are looking at genes for laziness and procrastination, for example. And one of the things we found is the best form of exercise. I looked at different forms of exercise and how they trigger different genes. And what's interesting is, you know, yoga is very trendy now, but yoga is good for stress relaxation. So it brings down your blood pressure, stuff like that. And we know like Tai Chi is very good for balance and stuff. But, you know, dancing, especially with leg movement, is the best for uh, reducing dementia and Parkinson's and that kind of stuff. So what they found is all these blue zones, pretty much Okinawa and Japan, it's in Japan, in, in, in Japanese people call it the island of culture or something like that, because that's supposed to be where more of their traditional dances come from. You know, even, you know, Celtic dancing has been shown, you know, I was in Dublin at the Writers' Festival earlier in the year, and they had a lot of big names, and you know, there's Bernie Sanders and Colm Toybean and all that. And my topic, I said to them, is why we finally can forgive you guys for river dance, because even that, you know, reduces the risk of dementia so we may not forgive flatly for such a terrible dance but actually it does help <laughs> yeah so actually it's true we don't dance enough we don't you know commune do communal activities enough we don't interact enough because you know now everything is we're so processed you know what i mean our foods are processed and because of our technology we also become more processed people whereas in these places islands they're more isolated so actually people are more natural and i think that's really single messages you know life is meant to be enjoyed and be a bit more natural without you know you don't have to be a faddist about it or go over the top but you know you can still live life and occasionally indulge in other things but i think if you day-to-day basis if we what's apparent about blue zones are fundamentally there's virtually no fast food or processed food there and the second thing is they have a lot more communal activities and things like movements like dancing and things like that not frowned upon but encouraged but you know what i find interesting about this sherrod is if you say to somebody they say how was your day what'd you do oh i took a nap uh, I started up late last night reading. Uh, I caught up with a whole bunch of friends. Uh, I had a big, big lunch with a whole gathering of people that I find interesting. Then I had a game of dominoes. Uh, that sounds like radio course, doesn't it? <laughs> but, but you know what's interesting with it, Sherry, yeah. is I don't understand yeah. why it's it, that would that would sound like I'm slacking off. Oh, I had a day yeah, off, mate. Gee, like, yeah, of yeah, nothing work. to do. Yeah, but what I mean is a lot of them actually work hard. But what you do is they start early. And then they finish off at one o'clock and they have a nap. See, you don't have to have a nap, but you can still do the other things or you can just do. But we don't actually, they just have a nap because they recharge and they spend a longer day. So overall, they probably sleep less than us. But I think that, you know, we don't, you're, you're right, you know, but I think, you know, like radio hosts like you guys, you could easily do that, finish off your show, have a nap, <laughs> come back for another round, you know, isn't that what you guys do? Gary normally has a nap during the show. That's right, this is the blue blue zone radio, you know. It's yeah. Oh, <laughs> how it. good's that? See? That's right. A new Just show called the Blue, blue Zone, zone. it's just silence. Absolutely. That's it. <laughs> Reminds me of a mate of ours, a guy called Dave Gibson, whose dream it was to do a breakfast show lying in a hammock from Fiji and phone it in back to Australia. <laughs> Hello, Gibbo. Uh, Hello, Gibbo. Now, let's talk about the psychology behind this, Sherry, because I, I really like this and I I like the way you explain it. I bind the blue zones. And since I came across this, I must say that I, I ensure that it's part of what I do in my day or week. And when you talk to people about 
the potential of being a centurion, uh, about growing old, about living past the expected date of departure from the planet. People seem sceptical. People don't seem to buy into it. People don't seem to think that it's possible to live long but have a rich and fulfilled life till the end. What's the psychology around longevity? I think they're uh, twofold. I think you've got to look at it two ways. One is, you know, because what we see around us is people reach that age and a lot of older people tell you, you know, they're ill and they're not enjoying life and all that. So you think, oh, my God, you know, it's not me. And, you know, like, you know, we're full of retirement villages and things and more and more and more. Like I tell you, I was at, a, I don't mean this badly, but I, but I mean half in jest and half seriously, I was asked to give a talk at some place and there was this really massive retirement village. And, you know, I was in there and literally some of the people, uh, sadly, because there was a dementia unit, they were literally just pointing them in the right direction and sending them to their activities. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, this is like walking dead without the flesh eating, you know. it's. Uh, and I was thinking to myself, you know, I don't want to end up here. But the reality is, when we have um, things like that, the image of that becomes bad. But if you go to these places, you know, these guys are positive. They're laughing. They're having fun. They're still getting into the water. You know, they're living their dream. And and I think it's interesting. But on the technology side of it, because one of the things we've done after the book is, you know, there is a gene test which people can do. It's purely for diet and exercise kind of stuff. But when you go to Silicon Valley and stuff, these young entrepreneurs like the Musks and those kind of guys, they're all obsessed in Silicon Valley with longevity. So there's more and more everybody going to the other extreme of trying to, you know, develop new medications. They're taking a very technological approach to the same thing. But I really think if you look at the average in these blue zones, you know, people hit 100 can have good health or at least 90s very comfortably. So there is something to be said when our averages are all like, you know, 15, 20 years um, less. The, the thing, of course, is psychology and how we manage um, stress is a big part of it. So one of the things you see, stress is a evolutionary response. So if you think about, you know, when Darwin spoke evolution of the fittest, survival of the fittest, People normally, you know, if you ask somebody in the public, you know, what's fitness, we always think physical fitness. But in biology, fitness is the ability to propagate your gene, and it's not necessarily the strongest gene. So if you think about, um, you know, 100,000 years ago, man left Africa migrating out. So life is very dangerous. There were saber to tigers here, there. And we had a very small footprint. Other animals had a much larger footprint. So what happened is that at that time, the scaredy cats survived because they didn't go out and actually fight the battle. So, you know, there's something to be said about being a scaredy cat as well. So, you know, you're like in the cave and you're like, I'm not going out because this tiger is going to get me. And the guy goes, I'll go nail the tiger. And of course, he doesn't come back. <laughs> so, so, you know, with, over time, you see what I mean? So over time, the scary cats propagated the genes, but all the brave guys, half of them never came back. So there were less of them left. But, but, but here's the message in this is what happens. These scary cat genes get transmitted down. So we all carry the gene, but we use it inappropriately. You know, now they're no more sample to a tiger's Poor things have gone extinct, but we're driving on the road and somebody cuts us in and we're like, we're treating him like he's a tiger. I think, you know, we overuse the stress response and the stress response is like a fire alarm. So it's meant to be used when there is a real fire, but you use it all the time. It gets annoying, Sup- suppresses the immune system. And so, you know, a lot of diseases we know, cancers, things like that, 
stress doesn't cause it, but if you have it and you're stressful, you tend to do a downside worse. So I think, you know, it's really important. We don't manage stress well at all. That's why we have appalling, you know, mental health um, statistics in New Zealand. I'm sure it's very similar in Australia. So stress is interesting. I suspect that in the blue zones, the Okinawans and Sardinia and I suspect there's still stress there. So anybody, so say we have a typical person or family, we've spoken about their kind of lifestyle. We know there are certain attributes that they share around healthy living, relaxation, community, napping, uh, having uh, movement. They would still carry stress. How, How do these people in the blue zones deal with stress? I think one thing is there's a larger sense of um, community. So it's less stressful because you tend to think of everybody as part of your ecosystem. We tend to have a lot more us versus uh, them thing. You know, I find it surprising, like, um, even, you know, because I I suppose uh, in New Zealand we have Maori, but we have have, um, largely similar to Australia, large um, uh, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, population. But in Australia, like what I found astounding is, you know, in Sydney, there's like Brighton, Los Angeles, a lot of Greek people, Parramatta, Lebanese, various areas. But literally you go to these areas and when I've been to the hospitals there, people speak that language. They still to a large degree, even sometimes behave like they're back home. So there is tends to be a little more uh, us versus them kind of a thing. So it's not part of a whole community. So that's one part of it, but this increases the stress. But the second issue is also that we tend to over, because we don't have those strong family networks, we tend to over-medicalize everything. In, in my view, see, of course, there's a place for medicine. I practice mainstream medicine, I'm not a real alternative doctor, but you need to medicalize things which need to be medicalized. You know, what's wrong in just dying of 100 of old age? What's wrong with feeling a little down now and then when you, you know, when you're not fully clinically depressed? You know what I mean? But I think everything becomes like we want a quick fix. And I think sometimes people like there are more philosophical. They're like, all right, you know, I'll just bounce back in a couple of days kind of stuff. And I think there's more a community thing. So everyone's in it to, everyone's like going to drag you out and say, you know, how are you doing? But we tend to live more isolated lives. So, of course, we're more slaves to our technology as well. Then you go there partly because, you know, nowadays maybe maybe it's just practical. You go there, the Wi-Fi is crap anyway, so you have to interact with other people. So you've said that medicine is not health. What's that mean? What's your view on that? Yeah, I think it really, where I was coming from is I found it very interesting. After I did medicine, I did law. And um, when I did a master's, what I found is that See, law doesn't always translate to justice, as we know. You know, we we know somebody would be, you know, arrested for something and they weren't read their rights properly. So there's not a common sense approach to law. It's all based on what's happened in the past in common law anyway. So, so for example, you know, someone's, uh, they just look at what was the previous judgment. So it's not often f- fair. Whereas the public will look at it and say, come on, you know, people saw him stealing that he should be punished or whatever. So likewise, what I found in, uh, because law and medicine are very old-fashioned gills, we tend to have rules and regulations and restrictions, lack of access for the public. We develop a mystique around it. So what it means is that medicine automatically doesn't translate into health because we're an industry and we make industry, our, our 
industry runs on illness. So if you think about it, you know, pharmaceutical companies, if there are no illnesses, they're not going to sell any medication. So, so same with hospitals, irrespective of whether you have a public health model like the NHS in Britain and Australia, New Zealand, we tend to be a more hybrid model or a fully private system like in the U.S., we still have a system where we tend to, we cannot pay for all the healthcare. And what happens is we're still funded on an illness model. So even in a public hospital, if you're a heart surgeon, they'll say, okay, we pay you for 100 operations a year, whatever. And then the next year you will get an inflation. I just said maybe 102. But if you did 90, you're going to miss out on funding. So you have to, so in a perverse sort of way, we fund illness rather than keeping people out of hospital. So even GPs, when they're incentivized, you're incentivized on how many people with diabetes you have, you get an extra payment, things like that, Britain, New Zealand. It's not on you not getting them to that level. So let me give you one example. So one gene thing which I found quite fascinating was a vitamin C gene because one in five people have a non-functioning variant of this uh, gene. So what it means is you need to like double or triple your intake of vitamin C, as simple as eating another orange or another capsicum or something. But if you didn't do that, per year, your waist circumference went a very tiny bit, your blood pressure went up very little, and you know your kidneys deteriorated. They were all so subtle that nothing was noticeable till you looked at your photo when you were 50 compared to when you were 20 and you were no longer skinny but you develop pre-diabetes, or you did develop blood pressure. And this could have been prevented even if you're doing all the right things simply by eating an orange a day. But typically in medicine, we'll only pick these people up at that end. So that's what I mean. So to be health, um, it can't be because it's an industry. So to be healthy, you have to take personal responsibility. You've got to say, I want to know my body. These are my goals. This is what I want to do. Just like anything else, you know, we set goals for business, we set goals for sport. And this is really all about optimizing performance, be it executive or, you know, sports or anything, you know, just optimizing yourself. Anybody who reads your bio will see that you have always got loads going on. When you present, you present fit, healthy, and I'm sure you look younger than your years when you look at the blue zones, what have you taken from the blue zones that you've applied to your own world and or the world of you and your family? What specifics have you changed about yourself after your research into the blue zones? I think in a funny sort of way, um, it it was inadvertently I, I ended up doing sort of bumbling along and just figuring out these things before I researched the book. So the funny sort of thing is when I actually started researching the book, People always say when they see me at different things, they always say, you know, you look really young and you can't be 50 and things like that. And I remember I was in, uh, I've got a name drop because it's a Sydney show and I was with Hugh Jackman at uh, Bill's Bondi, right? It's true. He's a man of mine. And he said to me, you can't be older than me. That's like, and, and, you know, the thing I was thinking was that everybody says that. And it's like, I was in India at this event and I, I thought it's because, you know, from, Ethnically, if you're from somewhere else, sometimes people can't tell your age. So I was in India and originally I'm from India and I was in India and I was at this function and one of the guys asked me, how long have you have you got kids? And I said, yes. And this was a couple of years ago. And they said, I said, I've got a daughter. And they said, how old? And I said, 19. And then what happened was the next day I was talking to somebody else and he 
I overheard him telling someone else saying, you know, this doctor from New Zealand, you know, he's amazing. He's got this 19 month old baby. And I was like, where did this gossip come from? You know, that's not what I told you. And he was like, no, you look like about 30. So you can't, we assumed it was a baby. So I think, you know, within I was looking into thinking, you know, and everyone else in my family doesn't necessarily look like that. So I thought, well, it's not, I'm not a doctor, it's not genetic. So so the thing is, when I started researching the blue zones, I thought literally I don't eat processed food and I'm not fussy about it. You know, if you're traveling or something, it's fine. But I don't really buy much out of a packet, which I have to, they pretty much, I eat everything. I'm not fussy, I'm not a faddist, but more, more seafood, less meat, moderation, other things, and I'm not, I don't follow any particular thing, but I actually found that when I was looking more and more to the blue zones, all the things they were eating, you know, I'll have a lot of tomatoes, a lot of that fresh fish, that kind of stuff. It just ended up being a lifestyle I was following. I keep myself pretty active. Because in medical work, you're so busy, I always find you have to make some time, you know, to sort of try and do some endurance exercise, which is well known, you know, do a little running on a treadmill or something. It's also really important to be creative, learn new things. And one of the things in my life, because I do so many different things, is you're always having to learn something new. And we know that those things are a big part of. So in, like you said, in these blue zones, people, you know, they philosophized or they read other things. And, you know, we sometimes stop learning up outside our comfort zones because we just get stuck within our own silos. And I think those are things we know now in all these research we know from genetics and everything else, you know, learning new things, including, you know, if you thought, you know, I want to learn a new language, it could even be if you were a you know, technological guy, it could even be computer code language. But I just think learning new things, reading new things, keeping your mind stimulated, endurance exercises, keeping your body going. These things are really, really important. And the rest tends to follow because, you know, the funny thing is I actually came to this from my skin care research because everybody was telling me, make something to, you know, look younger. And I'm actually, we make some serums and things. And that's one thing I research. And then I thought when I was looking at the genes, I realized you cannot have bad health and good skin. So you, because skin just reflects what's going on inside. So if you've got terrible metabolism, you're under stress, your skin will reflect it. And what we found is the same genes for injury, illness, physical abuse, emotional abuse, cancer, also were implicated in aging. In other words, if you had a terminal illness, if you had a chronic injury, if you were under stress, you actually tend to age as well. When we talk about the blue zones, one uh, area that I hear mentioned a lot is the Akanawans, who have a saying called ikigai, and it roughly translates to why I get up in the morning. In your studies, how important have you found purpose or having a purpose being to longevity and I guess just general fulfillment in life? I think it's uh, it's really everything. About, it's so important because it energizes you. So, so I think, you know, sometimes people look at all these uh, tyrants of the world, you know, you can say Mugabe, whatever, and you think, geez, you know, it's 95, the guy is tyrant, you know, karma should have got him when he was 50. But the thing is, the reason is because they've got a purpose, right or wrong, you know, they've, that's what energizes them because they get up and I want to rule this place or whatever. So I really think having a purpose, when you look at big tycoons, same sort of stuff, 
But I really think from a practical level, what I find is the best way to energize or do something well, as you know from your work and my work is, you know, do, I've said this at many things, you know, make your work your fun and your fun your work. So, you know, and, and so you've got to make your work your fun as well. In other words, you've got to find something in your work, even if it's mundane, that makes it more exciting. We either make it more something you're discovering or some new angle you're taking on it, you know, stamp your own mark on it. And I think that's the biggest thing you see. Most people see one day a week I teach creative writing to children who can't um, read and write probably like the lower decile schools, which means the poorer socioeconomic school kids. And what I found is that it improved their math and science. And so I ended up as an advisor for UNESCO for uh, many years. And one of the things why creativity helps performance is because it stops you from acquiring knowledge, which is typically how we learn. But we actually tend to think about problem solving and learning new things. And and that's so important. And if you have a purpose, right, then you're more interested in it. It's like, you know, I was last year, I was at Dublin at a literary festival with Malcolm Gladwell, as you know, who wrote that tipping point and the outliers. And he was saying to me in this 10,000 hour rule thing, which everybody knows, you know, you do stuff for 10,000 hours, you can become the world's best at anything. Typically, you know, 10,000 hours is like 20 hours a week. And it takes you 10 years. But you're not going to do it unless you loved it. You know, if it's your parents' dream to be a sports star, not your dream, you're not going to put in the hours. Even if you practice, you're not going to have your heart in it. So that's why I think it helps having a purpose because it energizes you. It gets up in the morning so you don't... Because there's a vicious cycle. Once you're in the downward spiral of bad diet weed, and bad exercise habits and things, the, the negative genes get propagated. See, one thing I must, um, you know clarify here is genes just make proteins. So sometimes they make good protein, sometimes they make bad. So the same gene can be like a double-edged sword. So really for us, it's really, if you slack off and you're eating junk food, there are plenty of times we've seen sluggish genes are expressed. So, you know, that's why people who are on the street sometimes look overweight, even if their diet is poor, they're not eating enough. And people often will say, oh, look at him, you know, he, he can't be homeless. But in actual fact, research shows that Forget diet aside, once you have those genes, there are actually genes when you're under stress, which is express obesity genes. And when you're eating junk food, that also expresses the stress genes. So, you know, I, I wrote an article in the American press. Of course, it didn't get published because now everyone's careful. It was called Trumping Your Hot Head. And I said that, you know, if we optimize certain presidents' diets, you know, then they won't be so angry and they may become happy. <laughs> I wonder why they wouldn't publish that one. <laughs> That's right. Maybe it was good. I probably would have had so many people trolling <laughs> me that I couldn't be talking to now. <laughs> I just want to camp on the gene for a second, um, and I want to go down that laneway. Now, I just need you to dumb this down for me in terms of we hear a lot and we're hearing a lot more about genes, and this is the second thing I want to ask you about because I believe that most of us know the term but don't know what the heck they are. Now, you just said that a gene produces, was a specific molecule that creates like a protein. And I understand it's a region of DNA. And it, you've said it's a roadmap or it encodes function. Is a gene a thing? Because I've heard you talk about it and it seems like a molecule that carries perceptions. <laughs> is, is it an actual thing you can see 
Sherrod is what yes. is it? So you you can it's a section. So so let's just look. So if you as you said DNA, you know we know the strands and the double helix and the spiral ta da da. Most of the bits of DNA. Um, so basically, all those strands you're seeing are, are amalgamation of proteins, right? So if you look at all these, yeah. So they're all basically proteins which have different functions. So certain parts of these proteins encode for certain things. So, for example, if you said you need this particular pattern and these amino acids in this particular configuration to, it's like a design. So we're saying that means this. It's like an alphabet. This sequence means that. But here's what's interesting is that's why um, Richard Dawkins wrote the book called The Selfish Gene is what we don't realize is the genes are just genes because these genes are there in creatures and we share these creatures, uh, genes with a lot of primitive creatures. So the genes actually don't care about us. They just make protein. They don't care if you or I are happier, healthier. Whatever we put in, we get out. So we eat junk and we do all that. The same segment of the alphabet, if you like, will produce something which will be bad for you. But the same thing can be good for you. So what we know is that particular sequence we know does certain things. So we haven't identified many genes, but we've mapped the whole genome, but we don't know what a lot of it means. But we do know that certain things mean something. So let me give you an example. Coffee, caffeine is one. Actually, you know, the other way we should do it at another time, an idea for you and a plug for my gene test is you should do my gene test on my website and then we'll come back and we'll expose you guys on radio about your genes. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's, no, let's do that. That'd be fun. No, that's right. But, but anyway, so let, let me, it's mainly just diet and exercise. I don't test for illness, so there's no implications for anything. But, but so to give me an example, coffee. One day you would get a report from, you know, just yesterday there was a report in the paper which said drinking three cups of coffee is very good for you. If you search on the internet, you could find somebody who says coffee is bad for you. So there is a particular gene, CYP1A2, which is the gene we know specifically breaks down caffeine. So what we know is 50% of the population of the world, and these were studies done both in North America and in Asia, so we know roughly across the world and in Australia and in New Zealand, 50% are fast metabolizers of caffeine. So what it means is if you are a fast metabolizer, coffee is actually quite good for you. But if you were a slow metabolizer and you exceeded 200 milligrams of caffeine, and to give you an example, Turkish coffee is 150, single shot espresso in Sydney is about 80, so double shot be 160, and you went more than 200, it could actually increase your risk of heart disease, it could increase your risk of kidney disease. So so the point is the same gene actually may be good or bad for you depending on um, what you're doing to your body. So that segment we know just does that. So one, the name is basically uh, a segment of like saying an alphabet. Basically, we know this this section of proteins tends to do that. And those little bits are what we call genes. Once we have, once we know that this does that, we then call it a gene for that. So like the vitamin C1 I was telling you earlier, that's called GSTD1. So we know that is specifically to do with vitamin C metabolism. Sometimes you may have four or five genes which are broadly within an area, like for anxiety or laziness or whatever. There may be five, six genes involved, and but you may be stimulating only one or two. So it's that's how it is. It's not exact, but for certain things we know that. 
my my way of looking at it is I just test for the ones which we can do something about and which we can modify. In my view, there is no point testing. See, that's where our point of difference is. Everyone tests now for illness. So you look in America, everyone's getting tests to see, am I going to get Alzheimer's? Am I going? But if you can't cure something, why would you want to know about it? You know, the stress is going to kill you anyway. So you may as well not know about things you don't need to know about. So I just do a diet exercise. It's all about what can you eat better, what you should eat less, what you should eat more, what kind of exercise is better for you, that kind of stuff. Can I just rewind you quickly? Just the yeah. 200 milligrams that you were talking about of coffee a day and, yes. and the gene that either helps you metabolize it faster yeah. or slower, besides a blood test, is there any way we can know? Um, no, it's, actually it's, quite, it's a very good question and it's not intuitive. See, this was funny thing is what I, I thought it was myself when I started down this path because what happened is if I have a coffee, say, after 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I can't sleep at night. So I always have to have be a wimp and have decaf after like two o'clock, right? <laughs> so, so, so then I thought to myself, I must be one of these slow metabolizers. So, uh, but so when I tested myself, so in fact, my daughter was teasing me. She was going, dad, that's it. You're not going to be able to have your coffee anymore. <laughs> and then when we tested it, I was fine. And she was a slow metabolizer, right? Yeah. So, so the funny thing is, it's not intuitive. But what I now know is that buzz you get, which keeps you awake, that's actually uh, to do with the binding of your um, caffeine to adenosine in the brain, and that is linked to your dopamine. And that's why coffee gives you a bit of a high. But it's not the dopamine receptor, it's the adenosine receptor. So really, the tighter your binding to that, the more um, you're likely to stay awake with coffee like me. So actually, it's really funny, you know, taking me down this, you see people eating and drinking, and you can actually slowly uh, tell their personalities. And I tell you this funny thing. I was in um, a London uh, at a writer's festival and, you know, William Dalrymple, really, who writes his Mughal series, historical books. And we went for a meal and he's sitting opposite me and he's eating all these sweet stuff, this dopaminergic foods. And I said to him, people like that tend to also be um, the more you know, faith driven within the families, like you're more likely to. There's certain genes we know. There's even gene for being more gullible, right? So like I always joke saying, if you're an evangelist, you only get them to sip off your communion cup and you swab them and you only bother preaching to the guys you can con, you know? So I said to him, I said, Willie, were your parents religious? And he goes, why are you asking that? Because they were all clergy. And I go, yeah, I can just tell from what you're reading. And I bet you like some massage and body work and stuff. And he's like, he goes, what the hell is this? And I was like, that's what you're eating. <laughs> and he said to me, I'm going to have to effing read your book now. So, so the thing is, it is funny. It's not intuitive, but you can actually tell you end up what you eat by looking at your diet. I can have a rough idea how you turn out uh, in, in your personality. So, Sherrod, just correct me if I'm wrong here that our genes are part of our DNA, but what you're saying they are is a pattern. So a pattern of basically how proteins are put together. The example of what I want you to explain for me is if I take, for example, I understand there's a gene for generosity, which is the AVPR1, which is the gene for generosity. Yeah. Am I right in saying that when you've done this test, you would then recognize that AVPR1 pattern, which would predispose that person to being more generous. So the genes are sort of expressing themselves emotionally is as somebody would be more predisposed. So it's that pattern which signifies you're more likely to, and then that person 
almost emotionally or intuitively has a desire to be more generous. Is that kind of how the gene works? No, not quite. It's basically what it means is um, you have it's, – it's like in, in sport, you know, when you say somebody is a natural, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be the champion, but they because of their attitude or whatever, or lack of attitude or whatever, but you know that they're actually – gifted in that. So so genetics is a bit like that. So so for example, you may actually not have the generosity um, gene, but you can actually stimulate a lot of the right proteins, which makes you that way by the rest of your actions and your philosophy and everything else. But if you had the gene and you didn't express it because you ended up with this crap lifestyle and crap relationships, everything else, you may be suppressing your own gene. But what it means is if you had the gene, you have an advantage that it comes more naturally to you, but the rest is about the environment you create. And this is where the, why I stress the diet is environment can be external, which is, of course, you know, pollution and everything else in the climate. And then internal is what we put into our bodies. And that's the real thing we have direct control over because we don't have much control over other people's actions, but we have control over our actions. So I really think that's why we can control our internal environment. And that in turn controls some of our genes or optimizes them. My understanding is that epigenetics means above genetics. So epi meaning above. So it's the way we can start to use the things you are a specialist in our environment, our food, our thinking to absolutely so, genes. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So basically what I've, what we've been discussing now is actually a form of epigenetics. So basically, like what I was saying is, you know, if you were to eat a lot of junk food, for example, what, like I was saying, it expresses these proteins from the same gene, which can make you overweight and stressed and everything else. But if you avoid it, that then you may be less overweight, you may be less stressed. So, so epigenetics is really people take it to the next level and they specifically tailor everything they do. I'm not that fussy, but what I'm saying is you can be sensible, live normal, happy, healthy life without people thinking, oh, no, you know, I don't want to go to his place for dinner because I'm only going to get this or that. You know, that kind of, I'm not that fussy. Uh, but what I think is that you can actually have a bit of this epigenetics going on, which makes you fitter, healthier, younger, stronger. And effectively, what we've been talking now is all broadly under epigenetics, which is basically, once we know what the gene does, we can do more of those things to produce the right proteins and have the right results. So so to give you an example, like I was in the UK, I was approached by some scouts for some of these um, um, younger soccer teams where they take developmental squads at younger age and they're trying to now work with these youth so they were asking me if I would help them because see, it's all about optimizing performance so if you did that it be it executive or sports or whatever then you will perform better because you're optimizing your genes and that's basically what epigenetics is all about but people take the next level focusing on longevity specific things they target that and then they become a bit more I suppose uh, rigid about it but we hear people say oh I'm overweight because it's genetic or I've got this attribute, which I may not like, but they blame it on their genetics. So it's just the genetics. It's, just, it's run through my family. From what I'm hearing you say is that's, that's not actually true, that we can actually influence that. That's right. And that's why one of the things I've often said in interviews is I like saying this is genes, you know, are our blueprint, but they're not our destiny. 
So really, you know, we can control it. So so the reason everybody in your family tends to be the same is because, yes, if you have the same gene, you all follow typically the same diet because that's been nurtured. That's what you've been exposed to. Mm-hmm. So, so like I was telling you earlier, if you took this example of a vitamin C gene and typically if that family had the non-functioning variant of the gene and so these guys were going to put on weight they were going to get diabetes they were going to if they didn't double their intake but if you didn't know know that and you ate the same diet of the rest of the family which was pretty much low in vitamin c guess what you're all going to end up the same way so you know and and that's where this comes from so you know of course so no having this knowledge um does help uh, but you can generally, without doing any testing, you can do some broad, you know, generalization. So without having to buy anything, you could actually say, you know, if you ate fundamentally one of the biggest things, you know, I, I would say probably one of the best piece of advice I can give would be your omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, because this is a massive thing. Um, you see, everywhere you read about paleo diets and things like that, and paleo diet is really a paleo fantasy, because, you know, in those days, we had different kinds of meats, people were eating, you know, testicles, brains, everything else. So that had different omega-3 levels and otherwise they had a lot of seafood. What we do today is we're just eating meat and saying it's paleo and eating some salads. The, the difference is there was a weed around the world those days, paleo men called pigweed or purslane, and that was very high in omega-3 and we don't even have that anymore, it's gone. So, So what's interesting is when people measured our omega-6, even our good oils, you know, our other oils, we think olive oil, everything else, many other sunflower oils, all of them are omega-6, whereas omega-3 is only in fish oil. And what we find, and other things which have omega-3s like walnuts and flaxseed oil and things like that. But when people looked at our omega-6 to omega-3, we know that bringing it down to ancient man had one is to one, whereas now we have up to greater than 10 to one in some countries, 16 to one. And we know that bringing it to 10 to 1 reduces breast cancer risk. We know that bringing it to, I think, 3 is to 1 or something like that reduces rheumatoid arthritis risk, other inflammatory diseases, and all these diseases we're seeing an increase of. So fundamentally, one piece of advice would be as generalization, have more vitamin C, but obviously make sure your omega-3 ratio is almost as close to your omega-6 ratio. And, you know, that's a big deal. And then, um, and you know, so so I think we just, and of course, having enough vitamin D, which is in, only in fish like salmon and and cod and things like that. So I really think if you're a vegetarian, then you'll have to take some supplements. Otherwise, it's better just to eat natural. But, you know, these are general things we can all do. But I think if you want to fine tune it, that's where it's like an epigenetic thing. If you said, no, I'm actually lacking some energy and I want to be the best I can be, then, of course, doing these tests and things help. That's gold. There's some gold in there, Gary. Oh, I think that is, that's a gold-plated Amiga. <laughs> it's Amiga Gold. That's it. That's right. Amiga Gold. Um, it's the mojo. <laughs> let's get granular with that. So it's interesting. I heard an interview recently with a lady who was very big on Amiga 6, and she backed up exactly what you're saying, Sherrod. She said that we are playing down the value of Amiga 6, and we had to – and I must say I then took that and made some adjustments just so people can say – Okay, how do I do this? Omega-3s are, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Shari, but we're talking eggs and fish and uh, extra virgin olive oils. And then the sixes would be like nuts and seeds, like linseed, flaxseed, that type of stuff. Is that is that the action plan we need? No, no, like threes. Are, so basically, if you look at omega-3 and if you look at basically um, 
animal sources, then it's fundamentally fish, right? And omega-3s also in things like flaxseed oil, for example, and also in nuts like walnuts. So some nuts have, but if you take the other nuts and then you take sunflower seeds and all those kind of seeds, they're all omega-6. So, so the interesting thing, a lot of nuts may be also good for you because they're generally raw and nuts and things like that. But specifically, we're not consuming enough omega-3 because the meat cuts we do now don't have omega-3. So if you took certain, I think when people ate regular meats uh, as opposed to seafood in the ancient paleo time, they ate, you know, they didn't discard a lot of the offal and stuff which we do, which actually had more omega-3 than we eat now. So so in, in some ways, you know, that's one thing I'm interested in. And in fact, I was talking to somebody because I do a lot of multidisciplinary work with different kind of sciences. And my interest is in trying to, even in Australian farming and thing, trying to get people to farm in a way where you can actually have your regular meats with more omega-3 rather than omegas. Because at the moment, you're just breeding them for size. You know, everybody's trying to give them antibiotics. This, they're trying to make your cattle and things fatter. Rather than that, we should be focusing on the technology to make them richer in omega-3. And that's where the true paleo diet is. You know, we just call it paleo now, and it's really just more, in my view, it's more a fad. If I wanted to work on what we've been talking about, but I had a nut allergy, how do I get more of this stuff in my diet? Yeah, so, so I think the interesting thing here is virtually most nut allergies almost usually peanuts, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's really not a nut and it's actually a legume. As you know, normally others are all tree nuts. So you look at nuts which are tree nuts, which are typically almonds, and uh, which is actually very good for you as well, but that's not as omega-3 as walnuts. So, so the thing is, it's very rare for you to have a walnut allergy. But let's right. say you okay. did, right? But if you were... The only person in Australia with a walnut allergy. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you too, guys. <laughs> but I think if you were, then there's plenty of other omega three. So if you were a fish eater, this place. So this is what I say: is it's best to eat natural. But let's just say you were allergic to this and you had a fish allergy as well. Then you could actually take synthetic omega three, which is available as well. So a lot of so that's the only time I would really say supplements because either you couldn't eat it or you didn't want to eat it for whatever reason. Then supplements because one thing we do know is most of the things you take in a tablet form gets excreted. So I was actually saying this. I had to give a lecture at the Mayo Clinic in America, and I was saying everyone's asking me about all these supplements being sold. And I say to them, you know, if you take a lot of supplements, there's two messages. One is you have to take them when you're well, because what we know is in cancer where I work in. So if you're dealing with, if people are on chemotherapy or something like that, and at that time, if you actually take a lot of antioxidants, it actually suppresses your endogenous antioxidants, which are trying to fight the disease. So you actually deteriorate. So if you're taking them, you should take them when you're well. But that's not intuitive. You know, somebody's going to say to you guys, oh, you know, you guys are looking a bit run down, take some vitamins. That's not the time to take it. Take it when you're thinking, well, I'm on top of the world. So, so I think if you feel um, that you, you can't eat fish and you are allergic to nuts, then you can actually take these supplements. I mean, there are now synthetic omega-3 available, all this sort of stuff, but most of it gets excreted, but you will absorb some. And, um, you know, but if you take a lot of supplements, most of it just comes out in your urine and it, your urine becomes so expensive that you may as well bottle it and sell that as a sideline. <laughs> Is there a way of knowing 
that you are doing the right thing and impacting your genes or the way your genes are expressed apart from having a test done? Knowing the results actually is something you'll actually see. It's more, the test is more to fine-tune it. Like I said, if you follow these general principles, which we were discussing, the genetics of health book, like, you know, dancing, eating more, generally, you don't need to do the test. But if you were trying to, if you were still thought you were doing all that and then you said you know I still am lacking a bit of energy what can I do better and this is really taking it to the next level but on the other hand if you were doing this you would actually feel fitter younger stronger healthier, and look so you would actually see the results so you won't need a test that you're doing the right things because you will know it I mean you you will you know it, it's like I always joke like my nurse has called me the energizer bunny because we operate late on Wednesdays and if somebody's running late at seven o'clock at night, I'm pacing saying, bring them on. Where are they? You know, it's like, <laughs> it, and they're like, you know, where's all this energy coming from? And it's really, it's just you discipline during the day. I hardly eat much of a pretty good breakfast, but, you know, during the day, I have a little almond butter, cracker, pastry, very little, virtually no, nothing during the day, just drink plenty of fluids. And, and I think, you know, so there is something about calorie restrictions that, you know, we do know that we also consume too many calories for what we do. So, you know, there are lots of things like that. So basically doing a test just means we can tell you, you know, you should be doing more of this, less of this. It's just taken to the next level if you wanted to optimize your performance. But if you did these general rules, they themselves take a modification in lifestyle because you know what I mean? It's not normal. You know, Australia and New Zealand are culturally very uh, similar. So what I find is, you know, Dancing is hardly the most natural thing for a man, you know, other than if you're doing the haka or something in New Zealand for rugby. But, you know, others were like, what do you, what do you want to go and dance? You know, everyone's starting looking at you sideways. So I really think these sort of things we don't encourage. And so even to do that, you're going to have to adjust your lifestyle a bit anyway. And you can substitute. See, other things are like exercises which have endurance and incorporate some balance. So that's why, you know, uh, you know, running, cycling, they're also all beneficial and things. So, so you know, the general themes are there. And then if you find that you're not still, you know, you are or you're competing in something and you want that little edge where everyone else is already being optimized by doctors and everything else. And then these kind of tests give you the extra edge. So, you know, like your Mojo Radio, if you said we are Mojo Radio, we want we are more Mojo than anyone else, then maybe we need to test you both. <laughs> I bet we do. <laughs> are we... Influencing our future generations, shared by the choices we're making today. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I do worry about the amount of um, how we've become slaves to um, technology, and um, therefore we're not moving enough. And fundamentally, the brain evolved for movement, so we are actually moving less and less. Even though you know, a small portion of us doing more as an entire planet, we're getting moving less, and we're getting fatter, and that has a lot of negative uh, genetic implications. So that's not a good thing. And the other thing is, um, like there was a study which came out just recently, which showed that when we're exposed to technology, especially the kind of moving images we see on our phones and things like that, they're more addictive than like a book or other kind of static images. And they target the same area of the brain, which is uh, implicated in things like cocaine addiction and things like that. So so the point is, the more addicted you become, 
um, you can't get off it and it becomes a vicious cycle. So actually there was a comment from somebody from Facebook just this week on seeing the report. They said, yes, you know, perhaps we've created a monster. But of course, everybody's still, you know, it's a big commercial um, success, so no one's going to stop it. But the point is we need to think, you know, it's ironic that, you know, somebody like Steve Jobs limited his family to one week of iPad use a week. When you know, so so the thing is, people do know it. People who've been studying the psychology behind it, things like that. So we know we need to try and limit our exposure technology. We need to go out there, move more. And if you're automatically going out there and running, you tend to, I suppose, that would be our version of, okay, now I care because at least we'll be more communal, that kind of stuff. So running probably would be as close to dancing in Australia and New Zealand for men. But you know what I mean? At least we become more communal. We're getting out there. We just don't do enough. You're a self-described learning and or reading generalist in that you've done law, philosophy, you've studied ethics, medicine, and you've got, in your terms, you've really broadened your horizons. How has, for example, law, how has that helped you in medicine? It's only really helped me in giving, like I said, giving me an understanding fundamentally that, you know, the very first, I really knew I wouldn't ever make a lawyer when the very first case you study in law is a, a contract law is this. If you ever studied law, it's a case called Donahue versus Stevenson. And it's basically woman sends a friend and into a shop to buy some um, ginger beer and the woman uh, drinks it and decomposing snails going in the mouth and she throws up and she sues the shop for damages. And then the case goes like this. The um, defense says, hang on, who paid the money? Uh, was it you? And they go, no, it wasn't the car. The friend paid the money. So technically a contract is defined as who paid the money or wrote the check or whatever. So, but you're thinking, come on, that's not fair. The guy shouldn't be selling stuff like that. But law is like that. So it is injustice. So it's really when I, I did it after I did medicine and I couldn't help thinking a lot of things in medicine are like that. They're not health, but they're quick fixes. You know, if somebody comes to see you and they're, you know, let's say you're on a GP and you've got a 15-minute time slot and they said they're feeling low, you don't really have time to go into their life and to sort it out. So you just give them a pill. But the second thing is, you know, like I may have said in this book, I can't remember, but I've said this in other talks is, you know, how unnatural is it that somebody who's freshly graduated out of medical school, let's say you're 21, you never lived life, you never had experiences, how natural is it for you to be able to diagnose a 65-year-old depressed woman? Conversely, in any other sport, if you retire at, say, 40 because your skills are gone, why do we allow a surgeon, say, at 75 and his doddery and thing to still keep operating because he can't simply say no and others won't stop him because of an ego problem? You know what I mean? So I think there are a lot of that kind of unnatural things in medicine, which is not skill-driven because I tend to approach we should be like Formula One. Let's optimize the guys to do what they do. So focus on it, develop your skills. So that should be the way you train surgeons. And then for the others, if you are going to be dealing with people, really, I really think nobody should be treating depression or dealing with people unless you're like 40 and lived life. Because, you know, if you haven't lived life, you come out of things, you can't learn these things. You sh- you need to. Yeah. And I, I think that's where it's an industry model and it doesn't work because it's not intuitive. And all I'm saying is that it's given me a broader intuition about these different things and, you know, and the ethical dilemmas which go with it. You know, that's how the system is and that's how it works. And when, but, you know, how how would a 70-year-old be comfortable in telling a 21-year-old, 
what he's done or what he hasn't done simply because that person is like his grandchild and has just come on and never understands any of these things. So I just think it's just totally unnatural. And like a similar things in law, yeah, some things are completely. Let's talk about teaching for a second. You said earlier in the show that you spend time each week teaching children about creative writing, which is just beautiful. And I'd be curious to know, what's a lesson that one of those children taught you that had a profound impact on you and your world? I think the biggest thing is that, you know, we are the lucky ones in life. You know, even when we think, oh, you know, we have goals in life, we haven't met or we haven't done this. If you look around in this planet in the same time, to me, I think the thing I feel is because I work with the lower socioeconomic schools and because these kids write their stories and, you know, when I read these stories, it is like some of these are horrific and... So, but that's the way they can express and they can reach out to you and you try and help. But what I think is, you know, it often gives me a sense of, you know, we are the lucky ones in life and we should be doing more um, to be able to. And I think you're better for it because I do it. See, when I started doing this, everyone's like, how can you like even a mom used to say, you know, shouldn't you be at your practice today? And I'm sort of almost like embarrassed that I slink off and I just teach these kids and I don't you know, earn any money on the day. But what I think is that. No one else does it. So even when I go to the school, and I don't mean it boastfully at all, it's just funny. Even if the school thinks, often they'll say to me, because they know I was on UNESCO before, that UNESCO is paying me or something, because nobody does anything now for nothing. And what you find is it actually empowers you. When you're not doing anything for nothing and you go there, you can be free, you can do what you want, you can just enjoy it. And you know, it, But the biggest help, they gave me these children to answer your question is they made me a better writer because, you know, you if the more you teach something, you know that you have to get better at it or you automatically become better at it because you're teaching them and you're starting to read up yourself. How do I teach this thing? And then you think, okay. And then you start ironing your deficiencies in your own writing and you think, actually. So, so I think the biggest lesson they've taught me is life is all about See, if I break down writing, this is my method of teaching children. I break them into the three C's. And one is, and this is a message for you guys in running a program, whatever. So the three things are setting your context so you know what you're about. And you may call it defining your brand, your mission statement, whatever, depending if you're a company or an individual. And then the second is developing characters. So in every novel, every story, you then develop each character. And that's about developing your own character of your show. And the last one is resolving conflict. In everything, there'll be conflict. In a story, when you develop your characters, there will be some conflicts which you'll need to know how to resolve. And in some stories, you resolve them well, and some stories not so well deliberately. But these are tricks you teach them, and these things you then apply to life and business and work, and then it gives you that balance. It's... It's interesting, you know, Sherrod, when you look at how much you are doing with your writing, with the children, with your practice, with your books, the study, and then you also are able to look after yourself, make great choices. We we quite often talk about a Bruce Lee who's the movie star and martial arts legend of the past, and he had a saying that said it's not the daily increase but the daily decrease hack away at the unessentials. What's something that you have gotten rid of in the last six to 12 months that you've eliminated from your life that's had a profound impact on your performance or productivity? I think it's, um, I, can't, I, I think I've sort of reached this stage in life a little bit early. So I'm trying to think of in the past year is a bit difficult. But what I think is I don't really do anything 
I don't enjoy or I'm not passionate about. So perhaps the thing I've eliminated would be um, not, um, see, because you get invited to a lot of things, making it a point that not to network for the sake of networking, which I've never been a networker anyway. But, you know, if you get invited for something and sometimes you think you must go, but the thing you look at is, do you really want to go? Is there are these people you want to hang out with? And I think that's have eliminated a lot more, so I've become even more reclusive. So you do <laughs> talk to people and hang out with people you want to be with. But so you're actually funny. You can be, you can actually, but what it does is you actually find that you're hanging out with more people you have time for. And that's what happens in these little islands because they're actually not meeting anyone outside there. You know, so, so I don't meet, anybody just because I think this is going to make, get me to the next place. And so therefore I'm not a natural businessman because, you know, you need to, I suppose, do that. But what I'm, what I find is that in following your dream, things automatically fall into place and it, you know, it just happens and it keeps moving forwards and you don't stop to think about it. So it was really when Simon Schuster said to me this year, I mean, they said to me that no one in history has ever written fiction, nonfiction, poetry and medical textbooks. And I, and I hadn't actually realized it. And it's also when somebody asks me, name all the books you've written, I always miss one because you're not constantly, you're not taking them off a box, but you know, I've written three novels, three nonfiction, I know one poetry, three medical books, one more on the way. And it's it's more, you don't, you don't stop to think, it just happens because you are naturally following your passion and then you've ended up with it. And you don't set a deadline. I don't think I should have finished this book by this time. You just go with the flow, you know, and I think that's a better way. And I think one other thing, I think perhaps um, not this year, but over the last few few years is I think it's a more um, it's really important to not worry about all um, the negative stuff so what I try to get at is see the, the higher you go the more places you go the more people are going to be negative about you just because you know either people are envious or people want what you have or they just think you know you I think there's always going to be 10% of people in the world who don't like you for whatever reason, you know, it could be your name, your whatever reason, your race, your ethnicity, where you're from, what the work you do, whatever. But I really think what that means is, uh, this is what I say to these kids, what that means is there's a 90% that loves you, so let's just focus on those people. And and so 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 some degree, even at conferences and things, you get invited for lots of them. I'll just look at who else is there? Are these people I'd like to hang out in the green room before I go and things like that? So you just be more choosy with what you do. But on the other hand, they may even be strangers, but like these kids, but those are a positive influence on me. So I love spending time. So I'm actually meeting a lot more people, but you are actually not necessarily meeting people of influence, but you're me meeting people who can be a more positive influence on your life. That's beautiful. Gold. Last question for you. Uh, can you see a time in medicine, Sharad, where we will walk into the doctor who will bring up our genetic profile and actually speak with us, I don't say treat us, but speak with us and help us with our wellness based on specifically what our genes are saying as opposed to I've got a cough, a sore throat and feeling temperature? Can you see that, can you see that happening? Absolutely. I think that what, especially for the things like what I'm talking in the book, and and I think it, and I think this change will happen, um, not because of medicine, but in spite of it. And and what I mean by that is because 
medicine will resist it simply because it's an industry based on illness. So, of course, it's in our interest to have you have a cough so we can give you something for it because, of course, there's pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, there is a place for all of them. I'm not at all anti-medicine or anti-pharma. But what I mean is we over-medicalize everything. But what I'm saying is that, so even in this book, that's a message. I believe this will be the norm even in 10 years. I'm just seeing it a little ahead of the curve. So if we were to, I mean, if you went to the website or you read the book at the back, there's a list of the genes we test for. But if you looked at it or you were to do the test, you'll see what I mean. They're just very um, simple things, but it gives you practical stuff to do. And what it means is if this can stop you getting diabetes or getting overweight or being depressed, or thinking, why not? You know, I just think it's a... It's a, so, so I really think, and I think what will happen is as people start taking more interest in their health, and the only reason that will happen is no healthcare system in the world, be it in Australia, New Zealand, Britain, US, can actually afford to pay for all the illness. More and more, every political debate ends up being funding for health, amongst other things. Even in the US, you know, the big debate on Obamacare. New Zealand health is always a big thing. Australia, I see. So there's always between federal and state, there's always funding issues. And the only way this will get resolved is when people start seeing there's more value in actually doing this simply because it's a financial necessity. And I think that's how it will happen. So, Sherrod, this has been very, very enjoyable for both of us. Where people will want to know more about you, because there's a lot more to learn about you. Where do you send people, mate? Well, it's just uh, sharadpaul.com, S-H-A-R-A-D, paul.com, and then you can see what I do, follow me, get in touch, uh, whatever. I always, you know, I do actually respond to people, so um, you can actually get in touch. This is a test of the Mojo Broadcast System, the Mojo Radio Show. I also reckon, amongst all his other credits, that that's probably a guy who doesn't get a lot of sleep, considering all the credits he has next to his name. Yeah, he's done a lot, hasn't he? <laughs> So on the weekend, I grabbed the still, hello our good friends at still, and I went out to the forest on a mate's place and cut my own Christmas tree. Now, I dragged it home. Uh, well, the family did. We dragged it home the back of the ute, stuck it in the lounge room, uh, stuck some presents underneath it, and then we as a family put all the trimmings on, including the lights and the whole bit, with a bit of blue blay playing in the background. And I have to say, last year, we didn't get to it till late. Like, we, we didn't get to it till a couple of days before Christmas, and then everything was jammed in. But this year, we decided to start earlier. And it's now been up for a few days. And the smell of the pine to have a real Christmas tree and to do it with the family and to immerse yourself in it with no distractions, and it was all about the decorations, where to put the lights, where to put the tinsel, a bit of blue blay in the background. I've got to say, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. It is beginning to look like Christmas. We, we had a similar experience. We actually went a couple of weeks ago. I came home one day and uh, Sophie, the four-year-old, had decided that she needed to have the Christmas tree up there and then. So she and her mother and Sam, the not even one-year-old, put the tree up with much trouble from what I understand. And uh, so that night we went out the front and we, we put the lights out the front and shined the ones up on the house and put some lights in the windows that we have. And you're right, it, it sort of changes the whole tone of the house, doesn't it? So here's my advice, folks. If you haven't done it yet, get onto it. My advice is get a real Christmas tree. I think the smell of pine is one of the senses, as Arnold of the Sleep News talks about. If you want to be in the moment, then use the senses. And I think having a real pine, buy it from the Scouts or whoever, the local supermarket, Bunnings. And sit down if you haven't done it as a family and actually do it together. No distractions. Just turn everything off. 
put on some music, whatever carols you want. And the reason I bring this up, and it's fun, I'm going to bring together a few shows here. Michael Gervais, who is the sports psychologist who works with Seattle Seahawks, who won a Super Bowl. I asked him about what is it like when you're in the dressing room and you're approaching a Super Bowl? How do you bring the players to the moment? And his response was, if you're trying to bring them to the moment for the Super Bowl, out through those doors, it's too late, you're stuffed. His thing was, right now, in this moment, right here, in this meeting, in this briefing, be your best, be your world's best. And I bring it back, I just think that we are waiting for the 25th of December. But to me, when you put the Christmas tree up, and even if it's been up for a week or so, when you get home tonight, just sit underneath it with your friends or your family, your kids, your wife, your partner, put on some carols and just sit under the lights and have your dinner under the lights and start Christmas now. I, I have to say, I reckon that we are guilty of hanging out till Christmas Day. Everything happens on the 25th. I think Christmas should start now. Whatever day it is right now, you hear this podcast, begin it now. Don't wait for the Super Bowl. Begin Christmas right now. Sit under the tree. Stare at the tree with no distractions, just Christmas carols. Um, and start your Christmas and have a 14, 21-day Christmas celebration rather than hanging out to the 25th. I reckon the Super Bowl you should worry about is the Super Bowl of eggnog. So anyway, with that, folks, we're going to get out of here and we're going to go and celebrate our Christmas early, get started. So to take us out, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what day of the year it is leading into Christmas time, I reckon we leave with a bit of blue blaze saying it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas right now. We're out. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go Take a look at the five and ten It's glistening once again With candy canes and silver lanes that glow It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Toys in every store But the prettiest sight to see Is the holly that will be On your own front door A pair of hop-along boots And a pistol that shoots Is the wish of Barney and Ben Dawes that'll talk and will go for a walk Is the hope of Janice and Jen And Mom and Dad can hardly wait For school to start again It's beginning to look a lot Like Christmas Everywhere you go There's a tree in the Grand Hotel One in the park as well It's the sturdy kind that doesn't mind the snow It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Soon the bells will start And the thing that'll make them ring Is the carol that you sing right within your heart It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas 
But the prettiest sight to see Is the holly that will be On your own front door Sure, it's Christmas Once more. The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.